Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Last week, those of us who are here were looking um, at verses 29 and 30, and we saw there Paul refers to a sequence of five massive truths. We saw that that's been referred to, likened to a golden chain. Five truths that are inseparably linked together, God knowing people beforehand, God making a decision about them, and those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. Five massive truths. Uh, And together they speak of our absolute security in God. If God says, I know you, then we are safe forever. Those he predestined, he called, he justified, ultimately glorified. That's the great plan that we're caught up into. And then in verse 31, Paul starts into drawing conclusions from what he's been saying. Drawing conclusions really from what he's been saying in the whole letter up to this point. Remember, if you can remember, right back to the beginning, back in chapter 1, he makes this great statement in verse 16, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So there he states his enthusiasm for this message, and then he unpacks and unfolds what makes him so enthusiastic. And he set it all out in these uh, seven, eight, uh, well, seven and a half chapters, and then he comes to this point, what shall we say in response to this? And uh, that's where we're going to start into today, his conclusion from all of this. He pauses to say, this, this demands a response. What shall we say? Now, in fact, that phrase, what shall we say, is something that Paul uses quite often. Uh, he's used it several times already in this letter, and will go on to do so again. Uh, maybe it's just one of these phrases that comes naturally to him. Maybe it's more than that. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? What matters that? Well, he's been talking about being righteous in God's sight, not because of what we've done, but simply by faith in what Jesus has done. And he's saying it's not about what we do. It's not about law. It's about simply believing God's word. And then he says, well, what shall we say? that Abraham discovered in this matter. Why? Because Abraham was regarded, of course, and was a very good man. And so he, he, he looks at that. Then in chapter 6, verse 1, he's made, again, some great statements uh, on this same theme about being justified regardless of our actions. Chapter 6, verse 1, what then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, say, no, let's just stop and think about this. 
What's our response going to be to that? In chapter 7 and verse 7, chapter 7 and verse 7, uh, there again the same phrase, what shall we say then is the law sin? He's been saying it, how law, the law of God can't save us. In fact, the law of God tends to provoke us to rebel against it. What shall we say then is the law sin? Then in the verse we, we've just started to look at in chapter 8 verse 31, again it's the same. What shall we say in response to this in chapter 9 and verse 14, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? And so on. Paul's method is to state some truths and say, now let's stop and think about it. What, are, what do we say about this? It's not just a phrase that Paul keeps using. It's very much his method. He doesn't want to just set out truths and it goes in one ear and out the other. So let's stop and think about it. How do we respond to this? Otherwise, it's all kind of theory, stuff that's unrelated to how we live all day. It's very easy for us to come even to a Sunday morning and our minds are cluttered with so many things, legitimate things we've got on our minds. And we can hear the preacher. In fact, I heard yesterday of one little girl who I think is here this morning, who when she is at home acting out a Sunday morning, she has some songs, then it comes to the message, and you know what she does? She says, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> she's here somewhere. Uh, and maybe she's not the only one who thinks like that. We get to all of it. Your, your mind is cluttered with all kinds of stuff, and they're words, words, words. Now, Paul's saying, we've got to think about it. Because actually, our approach to all the other stuff that's cluttering our mind would be very different if we took on board God's word. And we need to take it on board and say, what shall we say in response to this? It's a good method to adopt every day when you're, when you're just reading your Bible. You read something, stop and think, well, what do I say in response to that? What does this mean? How does, how does this affect me? How does that apply in my life? How does that work out in the 21st century? What shall we say in response to this? Jesus told a parable. Do you remember the story told about someone scattering seed? And some seed fell in good soil. Some seed fell in ground that was already cluttered with other stuff. It didn't really grow. But where it fell into good soil, then it multiplied. And if we're going to be good soil, we hear, we receive the, the good seed of God's word, then we say, no, I'm going to think about this. What do I say in response to this? Because God's word invariably demands a response. Well, what's he talking about here? What then should we say in response to this? What does he mean by this? Well, obviously, the great things he said in verses 28 through to 30 for a start. Those God foreknew, so that refers to God knowing us, saying, looking at us and saying, I know you. If you had, ever had one of those embarrassing situations where you, you, you meet someone that you think you know, you go up to them and they, they look at you and say, do I know you? Well, God's never going to say that to us. Do I know you? He's going to say, I know you. 
And he not only has got to know us, he's always known us. He foreknew us. He's always had, always had a relationship with us, always loved us. And those God foreknew, he made a decision about, he issued a decree that we should be reshaped, remolded to become just like his son, the image of his son. And having made that decision, having issued that decree, he called us at a point in history. He summoned us out of where we were so that we came to know him. And as he called us, he justified us. All our sin, wiped clean, made acceptable to God when we hadn't done anything to deserve it. All amazing grace, all because of Jesus taking our place, our substitute, he justified us. And those he justified, he glorified. Past tense is a done deal. God's made the decision. It will happen. What do we say in response to this? These are the great truths that Paul has been setting out. But not just those truths in verses 28 through to 30, but really all he said in the letter up to this point. What do we say in response to Romans chapter 1 through to Romans chapter 8 verse 30? Massive truth. Paul sees a very big picture. He sees right back to before time what God planned. He sees all through history how God has been working it out. And he sees how God hasn't left any loose ends. God hasn't thought, oh, I never thought of that. He's thought about it all. And he's thought about how it all works on from here. And God sees the end picture. God God saw how Jew and Gentile could all be included. He saw that although everyone is subject to judgment, there's a way for all to be saved. He saw how the law, which is good, nonetheless condemns us because we can't do what God wants us to do. He, he, he sent Jesus to be the technical word, the propitiation for our sins, the one who suffered God's anger in our place he saw, he, he, Paul has seen all this about in Adam or in Christ, the two great divisions of all humanity. Seeing the whole thing, he's set it all out. Life in the Spirit, what it means to be in Christ. What do we say in response to all of this? And as he looks at it, he comes up with five questions. And these are the questions he's going to work through in verses 31 through to the end of this chapter. The first question, who can be against us? Then how will God not give us everything? Who can bring a charge against those God has chosen? Who is he that condemns? Who can separate us from God's love? Five massive questions that John Stott says he kind of hurls out into space questions that are always defiant. If God is for us, what do we say in response to all of this? So the truth demands a response. It always gets a response, actually. Whether we consciously do this or not, we're always responding. Either responding with faith and delight, responding maybe with objections and criticism, or maybe just responding with apathy. Who knows? But we're responding... What, what's the appropriate response? What if we think about it? What conclusions do we come up with? Well, today we're going to look at his first question. If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? That's the first thing that comes to mind. In the light of all of this, if God is for us, and when he says that if God is for us, he's not expressing doubt that God is. He's saying, if all this is true, since this is true, since God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, let's consider who this God is. He's the eternal God. He's the judge of the whole earth. He's the creator of everything. The one who is omnipotent, who is all-powerful. He's the, not only the creator of everything, he's the sustainer of everything. The world continues to exist because of God. He's the controller of everything. He's in charge of history. He, he says, be and things are. He says, stop and things cease to exist. This is God. Jesus said before he returned to heaven, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is our God. When Paul says, if God is for us, this is, of course, who he's talking about. Back in the book of Psalms, a wonderful psalm, Psalm 66, verse 5, the psalmist says, come and see what God has done. How awesome his works on man's behalf. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against him. Come see what God has done. This is the God that Paul is speaking about here. If God is for us, who can be against us? And of course, the point he has made is, God is for us. He's the one who knows us, who predestines us, who justifies us. He's the one who loves us, defends us, indwells us. This is God. He's not simply a God who tolerates our existence but is a God who chose us to be with him forever. This is the God who has demonstrated he's for us, and he's for us because he's got a vested interest in us. He gave his son to die for us. Jesus, the son of God, took our sin, suffered in our place, and the father saw his son dying, polluted with our sin, so that we should be saved. He's got a vested interest in our welfare. He's our God. He's our Savior. He's our Father. If God is for us, He's our Father. We are His dearly loved children. Those of you who are fathers maybe can identify with this. A father with young children. Maybe. Maybe you've uh, your children at school, and uh, maybe some of you can identify with this, some of you are yet to identify with it. But you, you're waiting outside the school gate, not as fathers, mothers as well. You're waiting outside the school gate for your children. You see in the playground your child being bullied by other children. What do you do? Well, you don't even think about it. You're in there. Because that's your child. Your child is being ill-treated. Not just how you treat your children. I remember some years ago, and I'm, I'm a bit ashamed about this because it's being recorded, never mind. 
Some years ago, Mary and I were visiting India, and we'd just arrived at the airport in Goa. And uh, we'd got our cases, and uh, coming out of the airport, you go down a slight ramp, and uh, we're going down this ramp. I'm pushing the trolley with the cases on it. Mary's behind me, and I hear her go, oh, and I turn around, and there's a guy coming behind with a trolley who has just rammed her ankle. He's got her right on the ankle. And I, I glared at him. And then he did it again. Well, without thinking, I turned around, pushed his trolley out of the way, and was about to go for him. I thought, wait a minute. I've just arrived here to preach the gospel. <laughs> If my arrival in Goa coincides with getting arrested for thumping someone, this is not going to look good. But the point is, he was hurting my wife. You don't think about it. This is someone I love. You don't hurt her. Or a father with his children. Do you remember how wonderful thing? Please, I have confessed that before God, my anger at that point. incidentally. And still not entirely sure I was wrong, but anyway... Um, Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 32, uh, and verse 10. God is, well, it says, the Lord's portion, verse 9, is his people. In a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them, carries them on its pinions, the Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him, and so on. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. That's how God treats his children. He's like a protective parent. If he sees his child being hurt, he's in there. Not a second thought. Guarding him as the apple of his eye. And you're his dear child. I'm his dear child. God is for us. He is. He's demonstrated he's for us. He gave his son for us. We can't doubt that God is for us. Does God have favorites? Yes, we're all his favorites. We're all in Christ. There's none preferred beyond others. You, if you are a Christian, you're the apple of your heavenly Father's eye and he's watching over you. Is God for you? Yes, he is. Well then, if God is for us, or since he is, who can be against us? Now, if the first part of the question were not there, if we simply had that as a question, who can be against us? Well, if you fired the question back at Paul, you'd get quite a lengthy answer. Paul, who is against you? Well, how long have you got? Governments, public opinion, churches, embittered Christians. Who's against you? Principalities and powers? So-called friends? I mean, you list them. You look through at the story of Paul and all that were against him. Well, uh, he expresses it when he's writing to the Corinthians, and there are many in the Corinthian church who were against him, and he has to protest to them, I'm your father. But still, they're criticizing him, saying, you're not much of an apostle. We know better apostles than you. So people are against him. He says when he's writing to this church, who not all of them were for him, he's asking them to pray for him elsewhere. And he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 
and verse 9. He says, a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. So, Paul, who is against you? Just about everyone. So, it's not that no one can possibly oppose us, because, of course, they can, and they do. And we're living in a society where Christians increasingly are opposed. And so these statements are made that this is now a secular nation. You think, wait a minute, what happened? I thought church and state somehow were politically connected in this country. I thought the Queen is the head of the Church of England. I I thought we were a so-called Christian nation. But no, we're now told a secular nation And everyone's rights take precedence over the rights of Christians. And if you are a Christian, you keep your faith to yourself and it mustn't uh, be expressed in public. And all that stuff we're hearing, who can be against us? Public opinion, society, the state, everyone can be against us. So Paul isn't saying no one can ever oppose us. He knew the truth. He lived his life facing opposition. That's, That's a fact. But what he's saying is, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's like the fact that God, this great God that we've been speaking about, he regards us as the apple of his eye, well then it cuts all the opposition down to size. It's not that it doesn't exist, but in comparison with the one who's on our side, who are they? I love delving into the prophet Isaiah because he's got such a high view of God and it just strengthens your faith. Listen to this out of Isaiah chapter 40. Really the whole chapter there, but Isaiah chapter 40 verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. This is our God. What's man in comparison with him? The nations are like, well, you've had water in a bucket, you empty the water out, what's left? The drop in a bucket. That's the nations of the world before God. Or you've weighed something on the scales and now you've tipped it off and there's a bit of dust left. Well, that's that's like the nations before God. This is our God. Didn't you know? Haven't you heard? Hasn't it been told you from the beginning? Haven't you understood since the the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught. Reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. That's our God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, everyone can be against us. Yeah, but cut them down to size. Look who God is. That's, that's the perspective of Scripture. Or oh, we read that from Isaiah 40, but Isaiah 41. 
Isaiah 41 and verse 8. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you, and said, you are my servant. I've chosen you and have not rejected you, so do not fear, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed. I'm your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my right hand. All who rage against you will be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you won't find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Don't be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel. I myself will help you, declares the Lord. It's like our hand is in the hand of the God of all the universe. We're holding his hand and then the enemies. Well, we've got God here. God's with us. God is with us. Who can be against us? So our perspective is, we know God is for us. We can say with the psalmist, in God I trust. What can man do to me? This is our God. Even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with me. Because of that, we don't fear. Yes, all can be against us, but God is for us. I just love the story of, I guess it's one of the earliest stories I imagine that I ever learned, the the story of David and Goliath. It's a wonderful story to tell children but it's a wonderful story anyway. It's an incredible story, really. Little David, so the youngest of many brothers and insignificant, presumably not great, a very great height, and he comes up against a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, and he was over nine feet tall or those who don't understand imperial measurements, about three meters. There's Goliath, nine feet tall. And there's this little lad, David, and they're in confrontation. And they're in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Little David is speaking to Goliath. I guess he has to bend his neck right back to look up at Goliath if he's going to see it, look in his face. And he says to, to, to Goliath, you come against me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. So there's David, not got any weapons, but he's quite happy to speak about all the weapons that this giant he's looking up at has got. A sword, a spear, a javelin. He drops his sword, he's still got a spear. And if he loses those, he's still got a javelin. And here he is, this giant, and here's David. David says to him, This day, the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'm going to cut off your head. Can't even reach it. Goliath is nine feet tall. He's got all these weapons. Yeah, but David's got God. David's got God. If God is for me, who can be against me? I'm going to cut off your head. Wonderful. He believes God. God is for us. 
what obstacles do we face? Are they kind of nine feet tall? And there's us. I think, well, how can I face this? If God is for us, God's on our side, then what can people do? And that's Paul's first conclusion as he looks at these mighty truths in these first eight chapters of Romans. What do we say in response to this? Let's look at this truth. It's not just about, oh, I must learn about redemption. I've got to learn about justification. I need to try and understand, well, if I've got my head around propitiation, I've then got to get into predestination and, oh, all these things. I'm just, I can't understand all this. No, Paul says, understand it. Get hold of it. It will nourish you so that you will respond to look at all life's problems, and there will be many, and say, yeah, but God's for me. God is for me. I won't be afraid. I won't be stopped. There will be breakthrough because God's for me. And of course, we can turn it into the plural as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, God is for us. We are the apple of his eye. The church, he is called to be a bride for his son. He loves his son. He wants a beautiful bride for his son. And that's the church. God is for us. He's got a vested interest in us. So that's our response. If God is for us, who can be against us? Of course, there is a terrible alternative to that wonderful truth. And the terrible alternative would be the opposite of this. If God were against us, who could be for us? God were against us. Just imagine. You see, there are only two alternative positions, actually. God for us or God against us. If God were against us, it doesn't bear thinking about. The prophet Jeremiah addresses a major world power of his day in Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 31. That great power was Babylon. And the prophet brings God's word to this major world power. And the word of the Lord to Babylon is, See, I am against you, O arrogant one, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. For your day has come the time for you to be punished. The arrogant one will stumble and fall and no one will help her up. I will kindle a fire in her towns that will consume all who are around her. And Babylon fell. The dominant world power, but God says, I'm against you. If God is against you, who can be for you? But if God is for you, who can be against you? It's so, so crucial that we know which side we're on. And it's not a matter of earning the right to have God's favor. Because the whole message of Romans is that it's all amazing grace. And by simply believing in Jesus, we find, hey, I'm now the apple of God's eye. Where I was disgusting in his sight. 
And all the stuff we've thought about in our worship time, a mess, like junk in the back of a, a, a junk shop. That's, we were worse than that. We don't have to contribute anything into it except to say, oh God, I need you, I believe you. And God cleans us up. And we become the apple of his eye. We've got God for us. We need, to, we need to be clear that is true. And when we're clear it's true, then we need to affirm that truth continually to ourselves because we've got an enemy who accuses us continually and tells us God doesn't really love you. You've let him down again and again. God is disappointed in you. You can't expect God to ever answer any of your prayers. You need to get one of the giants of faith in the church, if there are any, to pray because he's never going to listen to you. He accuses. He slanders me and he says, no, God is for me. But how do we know he's for us? Do our circumstances tell us that God is for us? No, our circumstances might make it look that God is not on our side. How do we know God is for us? Well, we look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we know God is for us. God has demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. God has demonstrated his love. That's how we know God's for us. And we need to keep affirming it, affirming it to our conscience. God is for me. When we, if you kneel to pray or however you pray, when you start praying, start with that. I know God is for me. Now I'm going to pray. It's truth. What do we say in response to this? If God is for us, and God is for us, it's not a mood that he's in. God doesn't have moods. It's not he's for us one day and not necessarily the next. It is God's decision. It's an unchanging fact. Because of the cross, because of our inclusion in Christ, God is permanently, unchangingly, steadfastly for us. Not just to defend us, but loving us. The apple of his eye. We need to know it. We need to affirm it. And then move in faith. Persevere. Face the opposition, but face God. Keep looking to him. And we're going to press through. And we're going to see the breakthroughs. Of course we will. Because God is for us. Is there any doubt about it? No, God is for us. Paul says, look at the facts. Now stop and think. What shall we say in response to this? We have to give our own answer to that. What, what are we saying in response to all of this? Well, here's one response. Who can be against us? Who can be against us? This is our God. Let's pray.